Good evening, everyone. What should we talk about? Um, I've got different definitions of consciousness floating around in my head, and there are all these different associations from Jung's conscious and unconscious to uh, I'm thinking when I'm focusing on my breathing, this is a conscious process. Mm -hmm. And but what I'd like you to talk about is is how how it works and is it the chain of arisings? The the chain it, of dependent arising, yeah. Yeah. So there were it shows up there and and it also seems if I remember the, the whole chain correctly that consciousness is, is one step and then there's one called formations. Uh, yes, well, it's called Nama and Rupa, or, or uh, uh, mind, mind and body, or, or name and form. Well, it seems like there was kind of a loop in the chain. Oh, oh uh, yes, that's that's okay. right. That's the the loop is between consciousness and Nama and Rupa. That's okay. right. Well, so, anyway, so yeah. if you could talk about that, I I I need to separate things out in my head. Well. Um, Consciousness is a, a word that is uh, sort of simultaneously poorly defined and actually defined in different ways depending upon you know who's using the term. Um, and there's a lot of confusion with uh, another uh, word, awareness. <laughs> so um, and. Um, It is very difficult. Probably, you know, in in this modern age where we have so many brilliant people in universities studying so many different things uh, and discussing not only scientifically but also, you know, using the tools of uh, logic and philosophy to examine things. Uh, and you have this sense that almost anything that uh, uh, can be studied and investigated has been and, and, and the answers to all these questions are coming. But at this moment, if you were to probably go to any, uh, any group of either scientists or philosophers, either one, and say, what's the most intractable problem uh, in your field today, both the scientists and the philosophers would say uh, consciousness. So I'm not alone then. No, you're not alone. You're not alone at all. The funny thing is that everybody, everybody knows what the word is referring to, you know, and uh, it seems so basic and fundamental. Uh, it's it's surprising when you go to look at it more closely how elusive it becomes and how confusing it becomes. But um, the way we we if we compare what's conscious with being unconscious, that's pretty straightforward, right? And then we have 
all kinds of things where uh, we refer to them being as subconscious because they're uh, we're not conscious of them, but we could be conscious of them, and they're not like unconsciousness. They're like some kind of mental activity that's taking place, uh, but. Clearly, uh, when we refer to something as subconscious, what we're saying is that even though there's a process taking place, even though we uh, might have been conscious of it, or we might at some time to be able to be conscious of it, we're identifying it as something that we're not conscious of at the moment. And so this kind of just brings us back to this intuitive understanding that we all have of what it means to be conscious. And when we reflect on that, we see that, that we, we always find consciousness in association with an object of consciousness. It's not really, it's not particularly meaningful to speak of consciousness uh, separately as being present without an object of consciousness. And in fact, we can't really imagine that if we're conscious. And this is one of the things that you do in meditation, is you keep refining uh, the states in your mind till there's no longer any thoughts, but you're still conscious. Well, what are you conscious of when you're not conscious of your thoughts? Well, it turns out to be a more subtle kind of thinking. Or else, of course, you're conscious of things that are uh, sensations. But you keep refining this and uh, what is really clear is that consciousness and objects of consciousness, at least in our ordinary experience of it, ordinary understanding of it, always occur together. Now, and and that is the, the meaning, actually, of the word that is was is used in the Buddhist teachings. That means that is translated into English as consciousness, yeah, vijnana. Uh, and what the jnana means, knowing, and what the v uh, prefix to it is that it is dualistic knowing. There is the knower and the known. And so. Everything that the word vijnana applies to, which we translate into English as consciousness, uh, is is an experience, a dualistic experience of there being some object that is known and some separate knower that's doing the knowing, or even just a separate. Anyway, there's a duality there. So if we go back to the links of dependent origination. And if we take the, you know, there's altogether, uh, there's 12, there's different formulations of them, but the, uh, the most number you ever find is 12. And the first two refer to the past, and the last two refer to the future. So if we focus on the eight in the middle, and I think that's what you were talking about there, the first of those eight, which would be the third out of the 12, but the first of the eight is consciousness. And the second of the eight, or the fourth of the twelve, <laughs> but the second of the eight comes right after it, is uh, name and form, uh, or nama and rupa. 
And uh, what you were also referring to is if you look, when the Buddha is describing his his enlightenment and his reflection upon, you know, basically his discovery of these links of dependent origination, he says that uh, with, with consciousness as a cause, Nama and Rupa uh, arise, and with Nama and Rupa as a rise, uh, as a cause, consciousness arises. And he says these two uh, uh, turn back upon themselves. And this, in, in this way, they stand apart from all of the other links of dependent origination, which appear as sort of a, a sequence. This leads to that, and that leads to the next, and so forth. We have these two that go back and forth on each other. Now, uh, the nama and rupa part, if you understand what that is, and the relationship to it, to, con- to the relationship of that to consciousness, then it makes a lot more sense, because nama means uh, name literally, but in this particular context, it's referring to all of the mental processes and mental objects. And rupa literally means form. Uh, it is often uh, interpreted, translated and interpreted as referring to the body or materiality or everything that's physical. But if we examine Nama and Rupa from the standpoint of consciousness, we see that consciousness always has an object and there are only two possible kinds of object of consciousness. And one of those is sensations, and that's rupa. Because everything that we call material or physical or the body is essentially known by inference through sensations. The actual experience we have is sensations. Um, and the other kind of objects are all mental objects, which include uh, the concepts by which we interpret and identify the sensations that we have. So. A sensation, a particular combination of, uh, of, of light and color uh, creates an image on the retina, and we recognize that image, and the mind generates a label, nama. So you have rupa and nama. Or there's a sensation on your skin. You, you reach in your pocket and you feel a coin. There's a sensation, and that is rupa. And then there is the mental concept that arises that says, oh, that sensation is produced by a coin. That's a coin that I'm feeling. And that's, that's nama. But when you closely examine your experience, you find that, that consciousness always arises in association with an object that is either nama or rupa. It's either mental or it's a sensation corresponding to the physical world. And uh, whenever, whenever any either of these objects arises in experience, it's associated with consciousness. Because it, just as we could say, well, it's kind of meaningless to speak of consciousness without the object of consciousness, because this is the only kind of consciousness we know. But also, if you consider those objects, uh, you know. Uh, uh, we might 
infer and like to believe that those objects have some existence separate from our being conscious of them, but the only time we know there's a tree in the forest is when we're experiencing it, and the rest of the time it's just an assumption. See? So, this is the relationship between consciousness and non-anrupa, and that's why the, uh, that's one of the reasons that the Buddha said, uh, uh, with consciousness as a cause, there's non-anrupa, and with non-anrupa as a cause, there's consciousness. Um, there's, there's also some other subtleties in here. Buddha basically defined the individual, the person, as non-anrupa. That's what we are, is non-anrupa. So non-anrupa is an individual, uh, a person, a, a living, sentient being. And so the other way these two fold back on each other is that where there is consciousness, there is a sentient individual being. And where there is a sentient individual being, it is, it is a being and it is sentient by virtue of its having consciousness. So these two always occur together. So that's, that's the meaning of that. Uh, which still doesn't answer the question, what is consciousness? <laughs> well, I was interested in how that chain worked and that, yeah. that really uh, helps me see that a lot in the loop. I can yeah. see the loop, too. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, and, and it's good to... Uh, I'm really pleased that you're looking at this closely enough that the question arises, and, and it's one that need, it needs to be understood. Otherwise, you're just sort of, uh, uh, you know, glossing over the significance of the way that these things are arranged. One of the things that is not often appreciated is uh, the approach that Buddha took was the most totally experiential approach of, of any philosopher or anybody who's ever made an attempt to describe things. It's totally experiential. And if you understand that, then you understand that then you can see, you know, uh, when he speaks of right view, he's saying right view is recognizing that uh, all that you are, that your entire existence consists of a, a uh, sequence of causally related experiences. And each experience consists of consciousness and an object of consciousness. And so uh, your, your whole what you are presently and your history and your future uh, is a sequence of conscious experiences that are woven together, uh, attached to each other through causal relationships to form a single thread or stream or, or continuous uh, sort of uh, mental stream of consciousness or stream of conscious experiences. So when he's talking about the, the links of dependent origination, that's actually the starting point is right view, is recognizing where there's consciousness, there's not on rupa, where there's not on rupa, there's consciousness. And this constitutes the individual. There's another little subtlety here too. When nama and rupa are further broken down, nama, the nama and rupa are the five aggregates, they equal five aggregates. Rupa is one of the five. The other four are our feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and 
consciousness. So you see, consciousness is actually included in the uh, uh, in the five aggregates. So in those two links, uh, consciousness and nanarupa, uh, there is even this is actually a pattern that you see in all of Buddhism. Is every every thing that otherwise appears to be a conceptual unity holds it actually holds uh, it, itself within itself. You know, it's uh, like uh, the uh, the second part of the eightfold path is right understanding, and what is right uh, what is right understanding? It's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. You find this over and over again, where, where uh, the, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? You, you, you've got a part, you, you've got one part actually included, and you keep coming back on yourself. And so this is, happens with those two, consciousness and nama and rupa. Consciousness is, the, is associated with nama and rupa, and the nama part of nama and rupa actually includes consciousness. It's like a feedback Yes, it's like it's like feedback. It's, it's uh, sustaining them. And if you look at the way the other links of dependent origination are described or, or unfold, uh, where where uh, with uh, with nama, where, where there is nama and rupa, uh, the next one is there uh, are the six sense bases, uh, and this is the mind sense and the five physical senses. So, you know, if you've got a mind and a body and a conscious, if you're a living being, then you have the six sense bases. And uh, uh, where the six sense bases are present, there is contact. Now, uh, contact has three parts. It has the object, the sense organ, and the consciousness coming together. Because, uh, well, for example, right now you have a huge number of sense organs that make up your body, and they are being impacted by many kinds of objects specific to those sense organs. There's visual objects, there's tactile objects, there's auditory objects, and so forth, all present. Contact is where uh, an object and a sense organ and consciousness come together, and those three. So, so. Uh, then it begins to make a lot of sense. Okay, why why Buddha described this as where where there's nama and rupa, uh, there will be uh, the six sense bases, and where there's the six sense bases, there will be contact. Because sometimes people look at that and they can't figure out why why is it in that order? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't it be uh, where there is uh, contact, there will be consciousness, or so on and so forth. So that's the way it unfolds. The rest of it is usually pretty easy to follow sequentially. Where there's contact, there's feelings. That's kind of obvious when it, whether it's a mental object or a physical object, you experience feelings in association with it. And um, so on through the, the rest of the 12. So that wasn't really a meditation question. Yeah? <laughs> but I enjoyed answering it. <laughs> it's, Anybody else have anything? Good evening. Good evening to all of you. Back from India, Hawaii, and all kinds of other places. While we get to stay at home here.
for those of you that came in and picked up on the last part of that, it was uh, a question, basically it was a question about the 12 links of dependent origination and uh, the relationship between them and what what they actually signify. So that's what you missed out on. You know, and I'd like to say I know that sometimes you you look at these lists of twelve links of dependent origination and the eightfold path and the four noble truths and the seven factors of enlightenment and all of these different things. And they seem they may seem dry, they may seem confusing, they may seem not terribly relevant. Um, and so on and so forth. Uh, they're far more useful and far more valuable than they may at first appear. And they the reason that they lasted in the form that they have for 2,500 years is that they are really powerful tools for understanding. And so they are well worth uh, coming to grips with and, uh, and getting to know. They're not, they're not nearly as difficult to grasp as they uh, appear. You know, a, a lot of times you pick up something and you read, you read about the five aggregates and when you're finished it's like you're not sure uh, what on earth use that really is. Nodding your head, you have that experience. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the explanations you get are in, uh, they're not written in the kind of language that we speak today, even though they're translated into English. And they use a lot of terminology that might not be, without some explanation, might not really be clear. So you'll take, a, you'll, you'll take the word that is expressed and you'll understand it in a general sense, whereas it has a, a very specific uh, kind of meaning. So they're often not well explained. So uh, it, and that's, that's one of the reasons that I'm here, so that you can ask questions about these things when you don't understand. Take my word for it, though. There is an incredible, rich, uh, powerful wisdom in these seemingly obscure and, and so-what-who-cares kinds of lists of things. And that's, that's really what I want to help you to come to understand. Yeah? I hope this is an okay question. Uh, at Shinzen's thing at the U of A on Sunday, yeah. you got a rave review from him, which I thought was great. Uh, but it seemed like you, were, you both talk about Vipassana meditation, but it seemed like his approach was like, to me, was like completely different than your approach. Well, he, he has a very unique approach. He has a method that he has... Uh, you know, he's actually developed himself, and it's a very good one. Um, it's really not that different than what I teach, but it's focused in a different way. And um, uh, actually, it would be it would be very enjoyable to uh, 
to draw these different approaches to vipassana together and, and explain them. So, uh, but this this is a technique that Shenzhen developed himself, and I think it's a fabulous one. You know, uh, having studied a lot of different uh, uh, practices intended to bring about vipassana. Uh, I really appreciated his when I became first became acquainted with it, and um, he he uh, I, well I'll use his words. We do take a little bit different approach to things, mm-hmm. and these these are Shenzhen's words. He said to me that he said what I'm doing is main. Is what you're doing, what you're working for is stream entry. What I'm working for is mainstream entry. <laughs> so we, so we, our, our focus is a little bit uh, different. But that's not to say that you can't, uh, and not only can't, but won't uh, achieve stream entry using Shenzhen's Vipassana method. But you will discover so much about your own mind, and you will be able to relieve so much of your uh, suffering uh, using his method. All of these methods are really good, but his his really focuses on uh, uh, dividing, as he says, divide and conquer, or disentangle and liberate. You know. mm-hmm. And uh, it's very good. Maybe that's one of the things that we could talk about later, if you're interested, if other people are interested. Yes. Um, yeah, following um, that tact, on, on Sunday, um, at the end, he was talking to somebody about formal practice, and he said that it depends, he, he said that he had a very broad definition, and one of it was of doing nothing, mm-hmm. and I did not get a chance to ask him, do you know what he meant by that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. That's that's an advanced practice. You, you notice how much trouble it is to stop thinking about things. Okay. Well, it takes even that much more skill to stop doing anything at all. So, so that's what he meant. Just right. Yeah. Just don't do anything. Yes, and, and easy to say, but yeah. that's that's what. You know, in a sense, that's what all these different practices are leading you to the point where you can can actually do that. Like the, Sylvia Burstein wrote a book, and she said, uh, "Don't just do something; sit there." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, when I hear Shinzen make the distinction between touch and feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I always find that, uh, that in my mind when I go and I say touch, feel is right there. Mm-hmm. There's really not a difference, it's just, and so I probably sh- should ask him this question, but mm-hmm. I don't get what, I know he says feel has an emotional component, mm-hmm. but as soon as you notice touch, you either are um, feeling that that's pleasant, unpleasant, both of which then often have a reaction. Right. Pleasant, I want more. Unpleasant, contract and move away from. Or yeah. some neutral. That's the entangled aspect. Tell you what, since there's the interest, and since a lot of you were at Shenzhen's talk on Sunday, and those of you that weren't, you know, 
I'm sure you can follow along. Well, let's let's meditate, and then afterwards we'll talk about that. So I can. Uh, your your question is, uh, you know, I really enjoy answering that and explaining that. And I feel quite quite comfortable uh, speaking for Shenzhen as to the distinction between feel and touch. So.